And we welcome you back to the Bill Bennett Show. Thoughtful conversation about the news of the day and addressing the existential threats to America. Joining me today is Dr. Nick Eberstadt, the Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy, the American Enterprise Institute. We're going to discuss his piece, The Changing Global Distribution of Highly Educated Manpower, 1950 to 2040, Findings and Implications. Have we lost ground? In terms of the education of our workforce internationally, what does that mean for competition and what does it mean for national security? Uh, Claude, uh, we have uh, always get interesting emails. I want to focus on one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd, I'd like you to read it pretty much in full. Sure, absolutely. Because I, I found it very interesting and very thoughtful. It tells you... Uh, be mindful of your audience. They're smarter than you are. Go ahead. Yeah. So it's from our friend George. The subject line says pushing my luck. And I don't know why he would feel that way. Yeah, no, yeah. you can email in anytime. George. Anytime and any number of times. Yeah. And I think I, in my response, I made that clear. Just keep, keep them coming and, and everyone else as well. It says, uh, hello, Bill and Claude. You honored me by answering my email, uh, on opponents rationale for rejecting the anti-missile defense system, which I find such a compelling, uh, necessity. Thank you. I have another, another topic on which I would love to hear you opine. Uh, He says, I remain certain that the election of Joe Biden over President Trump was as great a case of fraud as ever perpetrated. Way too many inexplicable anomalies. I cannot believe the visceral abhorrence of Trump uh, caused more to vote for Biden than for Obama or Clinton. I cannot believe that a majority so hoodwinked by the media actually pulled. uh, Actually, they pulled the lever for um, bare shells what he says, who uh, rarely left his basement uh, while thousands came out for DT, uh, uh, former President Trump. Actually, most didn't pull the lever. They sealed the mail in. So I believe Trump was cheated out of re-election. By they sealed a mail in. Mm-hmm. Just want to emphasize that. Go mm-hmm. ahead. He says, so I believe Trump was cheated out of re-election by widespread fraud, which took a myriad of forms. I cannot see another plausible explanation. My suspicion is clearly vindicated by performance to date. Now, almost a year and a half later, what do you think? Which are the strongest pieces of evidence that point to the election being stolen, or do you believe it was? Uh, he says, uh, back, for a sec- uh, back for a second to Star Wars. Bill, yeah, you yeah. cited four reasons offered by opposition. Fantasy. Bullet hitting bullet, escalation, and don't want to think about it. It is widely known, uh, widely known, excuse me, that a Star Wars defense is not fantasy, that it can be built and, therefore, not as improbable as a bullet hitting a bullet, whatever that is. So opposition really, as I turn the page, boils down to a fear that it would be embold- that it would embolden those in charge to escalate conflicts. Besides being outright stupid, is it not the most important job of government to protect the people? Is an anti-missile defense system not the ultimate protection? Are those we put in charge so irresponsible that they will become trigger happy? Wow. Love to argue that one. No comment expected. A lot to cover here. Yeah, let me start with the second one about um, missile defense. I mean, he makes very good arguments, and, and there should be more missile defense. Uh, is it fantasy? No. Uh, the Russians have it. We have a little of it. We could have more of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's one thing. Second, um, we, we're reluctant uh, to engage in any kind of nuclear exchange because of the lack of missile defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not talking about brinksmanship. I'm talking about defense of the homeland. Uh, you've got people saying now, I think it was Lindsey Graham, 
you know, if the Russians use tactical nuclear weapons anywhere in Ukraine, it seeps over radiation uh, into uh, NATO countries. That's a violation of the treaty, and we're in. Mm-hmm. What what the hell does that mean we're in? Right. So Russia launches 30 missiles. We launch 50 back. We have maybe, I think they have more than we do, but let's say for the sake of the argument, we launch 50 back. They launch 30 and take out New York and Washington and, and Dallas and Los Angeles. Um, is this smart? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, th- that's my question. And I think, uh, you know, our expert, Brian Kennedy, is, has, has addressed this as well. But build the damn thing. Now, I think there's a, a, a belated recognition on the part even of the Biden administration. This needs to be done. Some money's been put, put in that direction. But it'll take a little time to build it. So, no, I'm, I'm with George here on this. On this, I'm also with George on the election. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it and think it's a big mistake for former President Trump to, f- to continue to focus on it. I don't know if he's still doing it in the rallies. Do you know? Uh, no, not much. Not, not a lot not of times. Yeah, not as much. Oh, that's good. Mm-hmm. Because don't want to become obsessed with the past. Americans don't like that. They want to know what the future holds. Mm-hmm. But I think it was the Washington Post that said, 41,000 votes change in Arizona, Georgia, and Pennsylvania, and Donald Trump's reelected president. Right. Were there 41,000 cases of fraud? All that was going on, all the COVID stuff, all the mail-in, all the disappearing uh, staff, all the boxes from under the table? Yes, I think, I think, I think very, very plausible to think. George asked, what's the da- data point that I focus on the most i think it's the that report out of wisconsin actually um and you know they are focusing on this in wisconsin even in the primaries that had uh you know it running pretty even and then late at night the this hundred thousand ballots came in and they were 98 percent for biden it just was running even and then all of a sudden it's all biden so you know maybe it was ten thousand, whatever it was didn't smell right to me. Still doesn't. So, yeah, I think there are reasons to be suspicious. What's the point? The point is protect the integrity of this next election. Right. Let me talk a little bit about the primaries. Um, you know, if, if Republicans hold every seat they have in the Senate and gain one, they've got control of the Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just listening to Herschel Walker, who's done, I think, a very good job. He's wiped out his competition on the primary. It's, he's like at 62%. The next guy's at 7%. Mm-hmm. And he wants to take on Raphael Warnock. And I, that's good. And I think that's a good run and a good candidate. And I hope to God he wins. A lot of commentators are saying we'll, we'll test the influence of uh, Donald Trump in terms of his endorsement. He endorsed J.D. Vance, the, mm-hmm. the hillbilly elegy author uh, in, um, in Ohio, even though Vance had come out but several years ago, strongly anti-Trump. Uh, President Trump endorsed him. Uh, I don't know if he wins. I, I think he wins. If not, uh, mar- former Marine, or not former Marine, you're always a Marine when you're a Marine, um, uh, J- Josh Mandel wins. Um, other races of interest, Arizona. I don't know who wins there. Um, George Brunovich is the attorney general. He's a strong candidate. There's another guy named Lehman, I think. 
But I think good odds for taking that seat from Kelly, mm-hmm. the astronaut husband of uh, Gabby Gifford, who was shot not terribly in the head, uh, but has recovered almost completely. I think there's there's a good there's a good chance there. So I think Republicans have a good chance, very good chance of taking back the Senate. The House, I think, is a given. I think they will get the House by twenty to fifty or sixty votes. Um, Biden now. And I say this without any kind of sarcasm or inflammatory rhetoric, but he's he's going toward the bottom of U.S. presidents, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, across the board. Right. I, I saw numbers of Hispanic Americans, mm-hmm. 13% favorably for Republicans. Uh, that they are, you know, the vote was like forty-seven, thirty-four Republican for Hispanic voters. But that's interesting. That's that's twenty-four. Um, I'm looking at the House and Senate now. Sure, so we'll see. But but I, the the country is, it's a lot. A lot of it. What's going on is is in shambles. I mean, the economy, sure, absolutely, gas prices, mm-hmm. the border, yeah, yeah, may change Title Forty Two, which will double the catastrophe. What's double a catastrophe word? <laughs> cataclysm, right. cataclysm mm-hmm. at the border. Mm-hmm. It's just awful. And, um, you know, it, it, it's just it, it's just embarrassing. And, and and what are they talking about? A disinformation office? You know. Yeah. They're, truth they're not, or something they're, like that. Yeah, <laughs> they're, not, they're not hitting what, what people care about. Right. Well, and the, 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 the thing that I've been hearing the last week or two is uh, uh, getting back on this whole student debt forgiveness thing. And I think that is going to be the, the 2022 uh, or 2024, I'm going to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court phrase, you know, where he made that. That was all about the election. I think this whole cancellation of student debt, we're bringing that back up because prices on the rise. People are struggling financially. And this is the new thing to try to rope voters in. I got some specifics on that. The mm-hmm. total student loan debt. The last time I looked, it was 1.55. Mm-hmm. It's now 1.73 trillion mm. trillion dollars. Of that amount, the majority of the debt is located with households in the higher income brackets. Yep. Households with incomes over 74,000. Mm-hmm. Hold roughly 60% of the total public student loan debt. Mm-hmm. In other words, so, people who can pay it back. Yeah. <laughs> households with incomes over 74,000 hold 1.26 trillion mm-hmm. of that 1.73. Households in the lowest 40% income hold roughly 20% mm-hmm. of that debt. Households that are in $35,000 a year or less hold twenty roughly 20%. Um, so, uh, you know, the, m- most of the student debt we're forgiving is for affluent households. Correct. Much of it is for people with advanced degrees, mm-hmm. like law degrees and, and even medical degrees. Mm-hmm. So you are asking people who have never been to college to pay for people who have. Which is the majority of America. Yes. Uh, I think that number. 65%. mm -hmm. uh, At least, you know, or it's 60 to 65. If you give people six or eight years to finish college, I think it drops to 60. But um, let's say it's 60% do do not have that college degree to pay for the uh, 40% who do, Mm -hmm. uh, many of whom are quite well off. This is really robbing the poor to mm-hmm. support the rich. Go ahead. And it doesn't fix anything, by the way. No. So suppose Sierra no. and myself, my wife, Sierra and I, like suppose we still had student loans we had to pay off. We didn't because we paid 
ours off and, you know, paid for school and cash. But imagine if we didn't, if we were still having student loans, they were forgiven. By the time our son Manny grows up, he would still have loans that he would take up for school because the cost of education, whether or not he finishes school or works in his field, the schools aren't held to any sort of standard, no matter how much money they take from kids who can't really afford to pay those loan well, backs to begin with. That's, that's, right. a whole, that's the problem. The cost of education, return on investment, things that you've talked about. Well, that's a root and, cause. Yeah. Is the is the is the higher, increasingly higher cost of it, higher education, much higher than the rate of inflation, mm-hmm. still higher than the rate of inflation. <laughs> right. And the government keeps feeding this beast by giving it more money and telling kids um, who families can't really afford what the, those costs are. It, you have to go to college. You have to get this degree. Yeah. Have, when when a lot of these kids can become truck drivers and make $90,000 right off the break. Welders, 100000 Welders, see? Yeah. No, no kidding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Anyway, worth, 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 worth thinking about. All right, Dr. Bennett, for a few weeks now, I've been talking about Athletic Greens, AG1. And, man, let me tell you, I've been doing this consistently. It's an easy part of my morning routine. I just take a scoop of the powder, add some water, shake it up, and then I take it right there in the morning before I leave the house. And let me tell you, I can tell a difference. The biggest difference that I've noticed is in my digestive process, if you know what I mean good digestive health. I feel energetic as well. I feel light during the day. And I know I'm getting all the nutrients that I need. It's getting the job done. One scoop of AG1 and you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. I don't even know what an adaptogen is, but it's in there and it's to help you start your day right. So this special blend of ingredients support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, your recovery, your focus, your aging, all the things that my wife seems to be worried about when it comes to me and my health. And I'm worried about it, too. I want to make sure that I do things right. So here's how I take my AG1. It comes in a great package. They send you the powdery mix. It's all in the bags and stuff there. But they also send you a water bottle, and it's got the measurements, how many ounces, so you don't have to guess the measurement. You take one serving of the powder, 8 to 12 ounces of water. You shake it up, and then you take it. I do it in the morning, and let me tell you, I do feel more energetic. And I just feel good knowing that the essential vitamins and minerals and all the things that I need to be healthy, I'm consuming it in this one drink. Now, here's the thing about taste, because that's one of the things I worry about. I'm going to be honest. It's not as if it's cookies and cream ice cream, okay? It's a supplement. It's not coffee with a ton of sugar and hazelnut cream. That's not what it is. It's a supplement. But I will say this. It's the best supplement that I tasted. It just kind of tastes like flavored water a little bit, and that's fine with me. I was actually pleasantly surprised about how it tastes. Now, I actually would recommend this to family and friends, which is why I'm sharing it here on the podcast. Here's the cool thing about it. Number one, it's lifestyle friendly. Whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, this is good for you. It contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything while still tasting good. It costs you less than $3 per day. You're investing in your health, and it's cheaper than your cold brew habit. Athletic Greens AG1 was created when the founder experienced a ton of gut health issues and ended up on a complicated supplement routine to recover. It cost him $100 a day. So he created Athletic Greens after experiencing how difficult it was to create an optimal nutrition routine on your own. So listen, right now it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient 
Daily Nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. Simple and nutritious. One scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash bill. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash bill to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Let's uh, welcome Dr. Nick Eberstadt to the show. He's the Henry Wood Chair in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute. Dr. Doctor, Dr. Eberstadt. Dr. Doctor. Can I call you Nick? We have to operate now. How are you, Bill? I'm okay. (laughs) can call you Nick. Uh, You must. Boy, this is really interesting. I want to dig down into this a little bit i and excuse me if i'm my interest is seems uh, uh you know provincial because you know i had that job secretary of education <laughs> yeah and yeah we know a little bit so uh, you may want to talk i may ask you to talk about third grade more than you want but that's okay <laughs> we'll, we'll get there um the, uh, the, the article, folks, and, and we put, got put it up on the site, the changing global distribution of highly educated manpower, 1950 to 2040, findings and implications. What happened um, I, in that, in that, uh, in that n- 90 years? Uh, well, the, uh, the uh, final 18 years uh, remain to be written, as we know, but the, the story to date, is that there's been an explosion of education all over the world. And that's a very good thing. And it's, uh, it's helped lift humanity out of poverty and it's done a lot of other great things. Um, from a uh, international power politics standpoint, it's had uh, a, a slightly different impact because the 1950 to the present story has been one of uh, the United States going from being really the only higher education power in the world uh, at the end of the war to the absolutely predominant one at the end of the Cold War and now gradually losing its edge. Uh, and we're more or less at the point where, at least in headcount terms, uh, People's Republic of China may have more college graduates in their workforce than the U.S., and the U.S. is uh, seems to be struggling. Your focus yeah. is on higher education. I want to get to the precursors to higher education in a minute. Sure. But but the focus is on higher ed. How many people are in institutions of higher education around the world has changed dramatically since the end of World War II and the Cold War? Oh, it's, uh, I mean, it, it has been, it's been absolutely explosive, uh, Bill. And the, uh, the thing to know is that We've had a population explosion. Uh, it's slowing down now. But the education explosion has been way more rapid. And so in terms of higher ed, the growth of the higher ed population has been about 
twice as fast as the tempo of world population growth. And what this means is, I mean, this is happening at at all levels, I should say, but especially at at higher ed, you see this, so that the uh, the average number of years of school uh, for adult populations and for rising younger populations has been constantly rising everywhere. And um, among other things, this means that, uh, you know, in, in low-income areas, uh, health has been improving. You know, we always hear about how uh, income is necessary to improve health, and income's great for everything, right? But in places where incomes haven't improved that much, the increase in education has been instrumental in bringing down death rates for children, death rates for babies, death rates for adult populations. There's, um, the, the education explosion has done uh, more for the modern world than I think any other social intervention, including health interventions. Is this about bodies in, in, in higher ed, or is it about learning in higher ed? People tell me how many people go to college, and I right. and then I find out what they're studying isn't isn't worth the, isn't worth the dime, and we owe one point seven two trillion in student debt. Um, yeah, yeah. This is more than body count. Is that right? What I'm doing in this study is pretty pointy headed because. Uh, I can only use the um, the very blunt statistical instruments that we have at hand. Okay. And what you and I would want is a measure of the knowledge and skills that people are imparting, right? And I can't get that. Okay. What I can get is information on how long people were trapped in the classroom. Right? And so I can tell, I can get information on how many years people spent in school. Okay. That's not the same thing, and it's not what we'd want, but it's just it's like a starting point. After that, we pull question of did they learn anything in the years that they were trapped in the classroom and the quality of the education. But what I do in this study is just the simple-minded thing of looking at the quantity of it. And in general, if you look around the world, there is a correspondence between the, you know, the brute the brute stupid quantification and national economic per- yeah sure you and I you and I know that you you walk across the city you, know, you walk across the town and there's a big difference in the quality of education that kids are getting or that adults did get but if you look country to country and all you know one extra year of schooling for a national population tracks with about a 10% increase in its gdp per capita yeah. and it, yeah. it's a very strong relationship and that's you know and uh, we have great reason to be worried in the United States about the faltering quality of our education. And we know, and, I mean, and you, you know, illustrated the, you know, all the nation at risk stuff you did. I mean, illustrated this decades ago, and it's maybe uh, worse now. We also have a problem that I uh, that I try to put my finger on in this study, which is after a century and more of really rapid increase in educational attainment, which I think was part of the escalator of American success, our increases in years of schooling as a nation 
all of a sudden slowed down without anybody looking at it. And it's not because we've reached an impossible to uh, surpass ceiling since other countries are you know, going past us on this. Um, that's something we need to look at as well. So we, we, we need to look at the quality, but we also need to look at the quantity. Yeah, no, you're right. I, I, yeah, simple-minded formulation. Uh, you know, I, I, I keep bemoaning the, the, the quality of yeah. higher education and feeling sorry for a lot of these kids who take out all these debts and go to schools where they don't learn anything, you know, even, even high-priced schools, high-reputation sure. schools. But sure. nevertheless, I'm confronted with the fact that, as uh, you know, as one of the uh, callers to this show pointed out, yeah, fine, complain all you want, but still, if you want to make it economically in America, the degree matters a whole hell of a lot. People with degrees make a lot more money and uh, therefore can do uh, more of the things you're talking about, health and and other things. And that is is a fact that that degree matters. Well, well, one of the the places where, I mean, with the sort of statistics that I use in this, you know, study, and I have to be, you know, kind of like a chicken, you know, pecking at, you know, grains of corn. I've I've got to use the information that's available, you know, at the moment. I can't make the stuff up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The way way this information is put together, it'll assemble, you know, uh, higher education as, you know, universities, colleges, um, you know, community colleges. If you go to, you know, vocational courses after high school, that'll be in some of the higher ed statistics as well. I mean, my own, uh, my own inclination would be to say that we've, um, we've really, um, scandalously ignored vocational uh, education yes. in the United States. Yes, I, I mean, I mean look at, look, I mean, Bill, look at what's happened. You can't even call it vocational education anymore. That's right. a politically incorrect term, right? right? You have to call it career and technical. And that should tell you all that you need to know, that, right. it's, you know that the term has been, you know, Trotsky, that you can't use it anymore. There's an enormous gap still in vocational education. And as you pointed out, you know, the schools have a lot of a lot of K through 12 schools have failed uh, their kids in not teaching them a skill by the time that they graduate. Yeah, because right. college may not be for everybody, but everybody should end up with a skill that they can right. support themselves that's right. by. That's right. Let me throw another um, angle at this um, at you. We talk about America compared to the world. We're talking about American students, American citizens, and citizens of the rest of the world. Someone told me that at the PhD program in chemistry, I think it was, at GW, of the 46 students enrolled, none of them was an American citizen. Hmm. I don't know about GW. In general, but we've got a lot of uh, a lot of foreign, a lot of international students in our STEM programs. I mean, my my dim recollection is that about a third of the PhDs in engineering and other oh, yeah. STEM yeah, yeah. programs are international foreign students. Yeah. Uh, and uh, obviously, China is a huge component in there. And uh, well, I, I a lot it. of the students stay, but some don't. Yeah, I did a late night uh, talk show one night, Larry King's old uh, all night radio show, mm. and we had yeah. probably thirty <laughs> calls about people who said their TAs, their teaching assistants, you know, mm. were they couldn't understand them. 
uh, <laughs> you know, because they came, they weren't they weren't American, didn't speak English very well. It's hard to understand math. I'm not sure I understand. Yeah, math yeah no, that's <laughs> even if you, even if the language is right. No, exactly right. But but I'm I'm, I'm worried. I guess additionally that you know when we count, uh, yeah. you know, we may be counting a lot of foreign students. In uh, that. Yes. Okay. Well, so um, well, no. As long as they're living in America, as if, if you're a if let's say you're from India, you're in the U.S., you get a Ph.D. in the U.S., and you're still here in the U.S., you'd be counted in the, in the U.S. statistics as being in the U.S. until you go back to India. And maybe and maybe you never go back to India. But the Chinese kids who go to Caltech go back to China. Some of them do. But uh, still most of them, so far, still most of them stay here. Do they? Do I mean, they? Do they? Okay. Yeah. okay. So far, so far. I mean, we do have a problem, and this is a totally... It's a totally different tangent. I mean, we've got this we've got this big problem about what I think is a failed bet we made of integrating with China, you know, to help, you know, from the eighties to the present and the world economy and trying to reform China through integrating in our, you know, global system. I mean, that is a big problem, but I think that's a separate problem from yeah, okay, uh, the one that we're talking about here. So, yeah, two things you talk about, and, and I'd like to get into. One is yeah. the, the, the worry here yeah. uh, is not just about economic competitiveness, Uh, and our standing economically in the world, who's got the world's biggest economy. But you also talk about the security implications, the national security implications. Say a little about that, Nick, please. Yeah, for sure. Look at it this way. If there is this broad correspondence between quantity of education and economic productivity, we've fallen about two years of schooling per adult below the trend line that we were on, you know, because of this flagging situation we've been in over the past couple of decades that for some reason, uh, unknown to me, nobody kind of noticed until I wrote this little study. That would imply that we've lost about $4 trillion a year in economic potential because of this shortfall. And uh, that's an an enormous amount of wealth for our nation. And I think this this has all sorts of social consequences for misery in the United States and men without work and other things that we've talked about. Um, and then kind of the coming apart that Charles Murray has yeah. described. Yeah. But it also means it also means that we we can't finance our defense as uh, as readily and as uh, easily and as uh, painlessly as we would be able to do if we had four trillion dollars more a year. We even if we spent you know two percent of that on uh, defense questions. Um, we'd be in a much better place than we are now. We're dealing in a dangerous world. Yeah, we're not talking about the distribution of study, but uh, I, I, I think I know, Nick, that most of those students in those Chinese universities are not studying critical race theory. <laughs> well, I think in, increasingly they may have to be studying uh, Xi Jinping thought, and that's probably good okay. for us. Okay. <laughs> yeah, all right. Okay, fine. Whatever. But it is. Uh, but it is. Uh, no, but your point is. Uh, your your point is absolutely apropos. It's. Uh, it's an emphasis on uh, science, math, engineering, technical yeah. questions, yeah. Uh, and I mean they do produce, you know, some 
god-awful social science and some even worse humanities. Of course. But uh, it's an emphasis on, uh, it's an emphasis on the natural and practical sciences for sure. The numbers you cite, that, did you say four trillion? Um, for, for the U.S., you yeah. mean, in terms of, yeah, for so the, our, our, our economic, yeah, yeah. So this is uh, four trillion lost. My friend Eric Hanischek, do you know Eric? Uh, I'm going to be having lunch with him today. Oh, really? Great. Well, he, you know, he talks about how many trillion we were losing because of high school uh, Absolutely. efficiencies. So uh, give, give him my best, will you? I sure will. T- tell him I, sure I, will. I, I, I cite him all the time without well, attribution. He, well, he's, he's fabulous. No, yeah. he's, he's absolutely fabulous. And he, I mean, what he, he takes it a step further than what I do in this kind of little yeah. uh, study. I mean, I'm just looking at the quantity of schooling, and he's talking about what you and I are really interested in, which is the knowledge capital. Yeah. And, you know, so he, he takes it to the next step. And I'm not, uh, I'm not convinced that uh, that the knowledge capital coming out of China's universities is on the par of U.S. universities. But I don't think we should feel complacent about that. Right. I don't think we should right. feel complacent right. about that at all. Right. Right. Well, just one thing went my head. I don't know if you've heard this, but of those Chinese students who um, two th- two conversations, one I had with a, a well-known guy. I won't repeat his name because it's embarrassing to him. But he came to see me when I was secretary and he said, you got to do something uh, about these Chinese students staying in the U.S. after, you know, going to Caltech. Uh, he mm. said, we're, you know, we're, we're losing too many of the U.S. I said, what do you mean we? He said, well, I represent, you know, some people in China. Uh, I said, well, actually, I, this conversation's over. I said, I want them all to stay. Yeah, exactly. You know, please, you know, yeah, exactly. please, we need them, exactly. you know, uh, for, the, for, sure. for the reasons we're, we're, we're talking about. But then I read, I think it was in the New York Times many years ago, but uh, one of the things the Chinese did was built a, a village or a community resembling Palo Alto. Do you, do you remember this? Mm-hmm. In, order, in order to say, you know, you can leave Stanford and come back to China and you'll still feel like you're in Palo Alto. I don't think so, but no. nice, but no. nice, nice, nice try. Um, let's talk in, in the few minutes we have, Nick. And, and again, this study is so, so interesting. We recommend it to our, to our listeners, the changing global distribution of highly educated manpower, 1950 to 2040 findings and implications. What do we do? What do we do? Should I just stop my message about don't major in um, communications and just but go to college? You know, go to college and get a degree. What do we do as a country to, to reverse this, make it more attractive, more government money, go to higher education? Please don't say that. No, no. It's amazing to me what sorts of huge problems we have in the United States in this information era that managed to hide in plain sight. And this slowdown in educational attainment has hidden played sight for more than two decades. So I would think the first thing we should try to do is make American citizens aware that we've got this problem on our hands. And if the public is aware of this, the, you know, the wisdom in our society, and a lot of that wisdom is outside of the government, is going to start trying to figure out how we address this. And um, we need to have much better skills coming out of our K through 12. I mean, you've been on that crusade honorably for over a generation. Um, we need to 
augment, you know, non-university skills too. I mean, the vocational gaps are immense, and that should be part of this. Um, so we've we've got to we've got to do a whole rethink on this part. Now, while we're doing the rethink, the world is a moving target. The world's not standing still while we do our rethink. And we've also got to figure out how we're going to be coping with a new and, you know, let's say we've woken up from the dream of the last 30 Davos years, you know, from the end of the uh, Soviet Union to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now, maybe we realize the world isn't quite as friendly and costless a place as it was. We've got to be thinking about how, you know, we've got to be thinking about how we um, make friends and alliances with some of the rising educational powers in the world to cope with a kind of an unfriendly uh, environment. I mean, one of the really compelling uh, geodemographic zones is... Um, for lack of a better word, is NAFTA land. Mexico plus Canada plus the U.S. looks pretty compelling as a, a highly skilled manpower zone. You know, we've kind of, we, we see all this stuff in the newspapers that happens to be true about the narco-terrorists and the crime cartels in Mexico and corruption and all of that's true, unfortunately. But there's also been a quiet you know, human resource revolution that's been going on there at the same time. And, you know, the university population has been expanding rapidly. The health has been improving very close, catching up to the United States. Um, we've got a lot of gardening we could be doing in this hemisphere that would also be very helpful for our international security. But those folks you just talked about um, mm -hmm. in Mexican universities... Mm -hmm. Or not the people crossing the Rio Grande? No, no, not all. No, right. No, not all. And it's a very imperfect analogy. But if you take a look at uh, France and Germany after World War II, they had a lot of bad stuff that had gone on beforehand. And they managed to get over their bad history and, uh, and build a... a uh, go from a detente to yep. an entente yep. to you know the, the kind of the center of security for Europe. We have we've got much better relations with Mexico than they had in '45, but we've got so much uh, improvement that we could make in looking towards a kind of like a positive free world uh, set of alliances, you know, with a with NAFTA land and with rising powers in other parts of the world. Yeah, and there's I mean uh, there, there's danger here too, right? I mean. If, yep. if we don't, and not just loss of prestige and, and standing in the world, but, you know, you bring up Putin in Ukraine and who, who would expect that? Uh, right. You know, uh, China's superiority over the U.S. in the arms race, uh, in the space race, in the technological race could mean very serious problems for us. We are, uh, it seems to me, one of the reasons we're, you know, sort of reluctant, there are a lot of good reasons to be reluctant about nuclear confrontation with Russia, but one of them is our, our capabilities at defending ourselves. Uh, mm -hmm. And and this has to do with what you're talking about, the neglect coming from lack of focus, but also lack of manpower, seems to be, mm -hmm. and knowledge. Yeah. And the slowdown, the slowdown of education, I think, has been part of the um, process that has created this new misery in the United States. Okay. And the new misery also has... Uh, 
worrisome and potentially devastating implications for this social solidarity and mobilization that we need to do if we're confronted by an unfriendly world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, fascinating. And as always, very interesting work by you, Nick. And we're grateful you are a, uh, a national resource on your own. So don't don't move to China. I, I, I don't I think if I were to visit China, I'd be worried about getting a one way ticket. Yeah, I know. I, I, I know the feeling. Yeah, I've been there uneasily. I've been there a couple of times uneasily. But uh, thank you for this important work. Wonderful to talk to you, as always, Bill. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. The Internet is an amazing resource to be able to search for just about anything you need information about, right? We now use the term Google it as if Google was a verb or as if Google it was something that we used to always do. You want to know something about anything? Google it and see what comes up on the Internet. But there are times where you're searching the Internet and you don't want other people to know what you're searching. I remember my wife and I getting some stuff done um, for taxes uh, last year, and we just had a couple, some questions and some things we had to figure out. I don't know if I wanted everybody to kind of know what I was looking up on the Internet then. And some of you may be thinking, well, just use incognito mode. There are ways around that. Well, let me tell you something. Incognito mode does not hide your activity. It doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browser history. Your Internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. That's why even when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. It doesn't matter who your Internet service provider is. ISPs in the U.S. can legally sell your information to ad companies. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your Internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't see the sites you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Most of the time, I didn't even realize I have ExpressVPN on. It runs seamlessly in the background, and it's so easy to use. All you have to do is tap one button, and you're protected. ExpressVPN is available on all your devices, phones, computers, even for your smart TV. So there's no excuse for you not to be using it. Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by Business Insider. Visit Bill's exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash Bennett, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash Bennett, expressvpn dot com slash Bennett to learn more. You know, free email services like Gmail and Yahoo aren't really free. You pay with your privacy. In fact, Internet giants like Big Tech bank on exploiting your data by selling it to the highest bidder. Your business plan? Google has it. Your medical records? Yahoo can sell them to drug companies. 
You've got to be concerned about your email surveillance. So much of your personal data is at risk by using these free service providers. Companies can sell your data and they can target people with intrusive ads. You open up your email and then there's ad after ad after ad. It also opens you up to identity theft and phishing attacks. That's why I started to use Startmail. It makes me feel safe again. Startmail keeps my email private, period. Every email can be encrypted, even if the recipient does not use encryption. When you delete an email and start mail, it's gone forever. Not floating in the cloud, not able to be recovered somewhere, but gone. And Startmail uses their own servers, not Amazon's, which means they can't be put out of business like Parler. Switching to Startmail is seamless, too. You can easily transfer all your current email data, so there's no starting from scratch. Startmail is also backed by the most stringent privacy laws in the world. You get unlimited anonymous aliases. This feature protects your main email address from spam and phishing attacks. So when you're giving your email to a company but want to protect your identity, Startmail can generate a shareable alias email so people can't sell your information and they can be deleted any time. The thing I like about Startmail is that anytime I'm trying to sign up for a newsletter or I've got to send people my information and I've got to include an email address, it's unavoidable the way technology is. You've got to send that email address. The alias feature here on Startmail allows you to send an email address, still be able to correspond with people, but your real email address is still hidden. It's like an extra layer of protection. Plus, I like spy movies and spy television series, and so it makes me feel like a spy. Uh, Listen, I'm joking, but your cybersecurity has never been more at risk. We see this in the news all the time. Email snoops and scammers are taking advantage of the pandemic as phishing has skyrocketed in the last year. You can take control of your privacy with Startmail before it's too late. Start securing your email privacy with Startmail. Sign up today and you'll get 50% off your first year. That's half off of the first year. Go to startmail.com slash bill. That's startmail with a T, startmail, S-T-A-R-T, mail.com slash bill for 50% off your first year. Startmail.com slash bill. Okay, that does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to thebillbennettshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett and feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's billbennettpodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We will catch up next week.